Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. As you've probably heard, we're running ads on the Lincoln Project podcast. I want to thank you for your patience and let you know that these ads help us ensure that we can continue the Lincoln Project's mission of protecting American democracy and defeating Donald Trump in 2024. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Joining me today is John Seifer, a foreign policy and intelligence expert who served 28 years in the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service, including a tour at CIA's Moscow Station. John's articles have been published in The New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, and many other outlets. He also regularly appears on MSNBC, CNN, NPR, and the PBS NewsHour. He's currently the co-founder of Spycraft Entertainment, a global production company run by former senior intelligence officers and experienced Hollywood producers. John, welcome back. <laughs> nice to be here. Thanks. And before we get going, just everybody wants you to know, Lincoln Project favorite Trigby Olson will be joining us in a few minutes. He's just running a few minutes behind, but don't want to take any more of John's time. So, John, in Langley, Virginia, at the CIA headquarters, there is a wall, and I believe it has 137 stars on it. Good for you. And you may know some of the people that those stars represent. Some of those people will never be known to any of us, known only to God, as they might say, at the Tomb of the Unknowns. And I'm shocked and frankly a little bit outraged even that as we saw this coup, if that's what we're going to call it, breaking out over the weekend in Russia with Yevgeny Prigozhin, now former head of the Wagner mercenary group, that so many American political talking heads, politicians on the right said that this whole thing was a CIA coup, which is beyond me because I think that the CIA has been out of that business for a long time, probably for the best, but it speaks to a even greater divide amongst the American political class that you would see that one very, very bad person was on his way to take out, theoretically, another very, very bad person. And the one entire political party in the oldest democracy in the world is talking about how it was our own intelligence service that was doing this for some nefarious purpose. So there's a long way of asking, like, how does that, as a former intelligence officer, make you feel? There's long been this sort of view because the CIA you know, works often in secrecy that it's a place where you can put a lot of your conspiracy theories and various views. And this is something the CIA has had to deal with for a long time. But of course, the CIA, as the FBI and the Defense Department, and the State Department, and all these other places are professional organizations that work on behalf of the U.S. government and the U.S. president. And so they're not rogue organizations making up things on their own. They work for the American people and they take that job very, very seriously. And so, yeah, it really came along with the Trump administration where they decided that in order to protect themselves, they would attack the institutions because they don't really have a way to talk back to the people. 
as politicians do. And so over time, this really does start to uh, degrade some of you know, the ability of, of public servants to do their jobs. And I think if the American people, you know, could spend some time working with people in, in the Defense Department and the CIA and the FBI and see how serious they are and what they're doing and how they follow laws and regulations and that they truly work their asses off to protect the United States people, they'd be incredibly proud of these organizations. And so for politicians to use them as just sort of some sort of weapon when they want to talk on the news today and think that there's no real long-term damage, you're essentially damaging the strength of the United States. And our enemies overseas understand this really, really well. So they like to push this narrative and pump it up as much as they can. Yeah, I think that's, again, and just as a Cold War kid, you know, it was us against the Russians or the Soviets. We were the good guys. They were the bad guys. In my mind, the Russians are still the bad guys. It's sort of their <laughs> lot in life, right? Geopolitically, they're a gas station with nuclear weapons run by a gangster. You served there in what I believe your world calls a denied area, right? I mean, it's like serving in Moscow, I think even as you were there at the sort of tail end of the Soviet era, like this is a very difficult place to work. Yeah, even after the Soviet Union fell, that's what's interesting is, you know, a lot of things I write or talk about Russia now is to try to point out that, you know, many of the same things that came from the days of the KGB and the Bolsheviks and the Soviet Union are still being used today by Vladimir Putin. Vladimir Putin is a career KGB officer. And so, yes, Russia, sadly, has not really reformed and changed after the end of the Soviet Union. And a lot of it is due to Vladimir Putin and sort of becoming a dictator. And there's this paranoia in Russia, you know, because the leadership is not legitimate, it's not elected. All of the institutions of the state, the security services, uh, let's say, work to keep the leadership in power at all costs. And part of doing that is keeping their own people repressed and oppressed, making sure there's no political opposition, but also making sure foreigners don't see the truth of what's happening there. So in a normal country, when you're overseas, American diplomats meet the locals, they talk to people, they learn about what's going on there. There's American academics, there's visitors, there's business people. In Russia, all foreigners are tracked, followed, watched. When I lived there for two years, and it's not hyperbole to say every single day, at every hour of the day, I was followed. My house had audio and video in it in every room of the house. Every time I traveled, I went outside my house, I was followed and tracked. If I went around a corner and, and they didn't see me around the corner, they would come after it with dogs to make sure I didn't put any sort of package or spy gear down or something like that. Everybody I talked to was questioned. And so this is part of the paranoia of the Russian system. They don't want their own people to understand you know, the sort of criminal basis of the regime, and they certainly don't want foreigners either. And so let's use that as what we saw over this past weekend, which is Evgeny Prigozhin, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, runs something called the Wagner Group, which was a state-sponsored mercenary company, right? Complete with its own headquarters, a back office, and bureaucracy, right, <laughs> John? No one escapes bureaucracy, I guess. They had 25,000 hardened soldiers, killers, you might even call them, right? These were not good guys. A lot of criminals, former inmates, they had done or will do or have done or are doing terrible things in Ukraine, but have been in Syria and other places at Putin's request. But now Pergozin's been had been on this rhetorical warpath against the military leadership in Russia, specifically Shoigu, who I guess is the head of the general staff, saying, you know, that his men were being slaughtered, that he even accused the Russian military of bombing his troops. And so he puts together a convoy and 25,000 guys, probably the 25,000 best fighters Russia's got to offer, and they head north you know, what, 300 kilometers, 250 kilometers outside Moscow, and they stop. And they say, okay, you know what, we're not going to do this. We don't want any bloodshed. You know, 
in Moscow, Putin is setting up checkpoints, right? There's machine gun nests in neighborhoods, as I understand it. They've got all these security forces. Have to believe that if Wagner and these 25,000 guys wanted to come to Moscow, they would have won. As far as a firefight is concerned, that the tubby guys who get out of bed in the morning and drive around in the little white ladders, like they're not standing up to these guys. Yeah, that's interesting that you say that. And a lot of it comes down to that. So to step back a little bit here, this is really a battle between mob bosses. And that's sort of how Vladimir Putin has set up the way he runs the country. He runs the country as sort of the top mob boss. And his job is to sort of be the person who is the arbiter between all these other sort of criminal groups. And so you want to stay close to Vladimir Putin because that's how you stay rich and in power and alive. But he also doesn't want any threats to his power. So he doesn't want, say, the head of the military or the head general or any of these people to become so powerful that they threaten him or threaten him to be the leader. And so what he does is he uses others, a divide and rule, to keep some down at some times. And if they get a little bit too full of themselves, he can push them down. So Progosian paid a really useful role for him. Progosian's from the same town where Putin's from, St. Petersburg, former Leningrad. He was in prison for like 10 years during the 80s. He eventually ran sort of a sausage stand and became friends with Putin. Putin, you know, essentially made him rich by giving him contracts with the government in schools and this type of, in the military and things. And then he would use them for these things that he could deny overseas. So he ran the troll farms, which attacked our elections in 2016 and beyond. So early on, Putin would use these places, and then Wagner would be a mercenary group that would use forces in Syria and Libya and in Africa and in other places, eventually in Ukraine. At first, Putin would say, hey, I have no control over these are private companies. I have nothing to do with them. Now, as time has gone on, you know, because Prigozhin's become a threat to him, he now admits that they were state entities because he wants to accuse Prigozhin of stealing from the state. So this is all, again, it's like mob bosses fighting over each other here. But what has happened is because Putin, in this case, where he's trying to sort of balance all of these competing groups, he really failed here. Prigozhin got really ahead of himself. He was using Prigozhin to attack the head of the military so that that person wouldn't become too powerful. But Prigozhin, eventually, when Putin tried to move the Wagner out of being a private company back into the military, Prigozhin got angry and threatened the head of the military and sort of in a rage went up towards Moscow. But to get back to your original point, so he came, I don't think there was actually 25,000 people, but 10, 15,000 fighters. They made their way to a major city, Rostov-Nadano, which is as big as Dallas or something in the United States. Nobody stopped him. None of the police, none of the military. It's a big military base for Southern Russia. Nothing happened. And then they continued on up the road. They shot down some helicopters and planes reportedly. And then, of course, this deal that you talked about. So whether they could have made it to Moscow and done anything, I don't know. I mean, Putin does oversee massive security services. There's a private guard, National Guard, there's military, there's security services. But what happened is Putin realized that in a time of crisis, push came to shove, he couldn't really count on this. And so he's you know, created the system where he's the chief mob boss and he needs loyalty from all these people. But when push came to shove, a lot of those people, they wouldn't pick up the phone. They stood away. They didn't want to fight. They're just going to wait and see who came out on top. And so all of a sudden, Putin, this powerful you know, dictator who controls everything, his whole reason for being in the job is he's the strong man. He can create stability. He's, you know, without him, there's no state. When push came to shove, he wasn't confident that his security services would defend him and fight. And so this has created, you know, the immediate crisis is sort of solved, but the long-term crisis of confidence is there because 
the strong man whose weakness is this kryptonite has shown weakness to his people and to the world. And so therefore, it's going to be really hard for him going forward to know what level of loyalty he has. And since he's now shown weakness, he's in a much different position than he was just a few days ago. So John, let's talk about the shockwaves of Putin sitting there. It sounds like he decamped to St. Petersburg. His hometown is sort of his special place. There was all this talk on social media, and I'd love to get your opinion on that too, of you know, the Belarusian presidents flying to Turkey, all these private jets are leaving Moscow, et cetera, et cetera. So I get a couple questions. One, what's going on inside the Kremlin right now? That's question one. And two, does it ever make you just a little bit crazy that when things like this happen, everybody suddenly becomes a Russia expert? a power dynamic expert, an expert on militias and militaries and everything else? <laughs> well, the, the first thing to go to is, yeah, the reporting and what you see on social media. Now, even in the days of the Soviet Union and when Gorbachev fell and the Soviet Union fell, and then in 1991, 1993, when there was an attack on the parliament, there was a massive number of foreign journalists in Russia. And there was a, by 1993, there was actually independent Russian journalists. But what we have now is there's no foreign journalist really in Russia anymore. There's no independent Russian press. Putin has essentially repressed them through an unjail or they've all left the country. And Putin has been involved in this nonstop propaganda, disinformation, lying. So it's very difficult to get, you know, really clear understandings of what is happening in Russia. Like who fled where? What did they do? Who said yes? Who said no? Putin and his people are going to be trying to sort of cover that up and lie and what happened, what exact. So there's still a lot of unknowns about this deal and how was this dirty deal made with Belarus and Prigozhin and what is Prigozhin's state now and does he control Wagner and what is Wagner in the future and all those type of things. So we need to be, have a little humility here about what we know and don't know. And that goes to the social media issue here. So, you know, we see this on all, all issues, you know, all, since everybody has a voice now, everybody thinks they need to weigh in on stuff. And because this is a big issue, there's a war going on. Vladimir Putin controls, you know, a good portion of the world's nuclear weapons. It's an issue that, you know, everybody wants to have an opinion on. And sadly, in the United States, these become partisan issues where people just knee jerk if you're a Republican or whatever that go for a sort of pro-Russian view of this, if you will. But yeah, again, this is about a strong man all of a sudden showing weakness. And in a system where you're not elected, where there's no sort of legitimacy, and your whole reason for being was after the Soviet Union fell, we were weak. The world was coming after us. The place is falling apart. You need me. I'm the strong man. I will destroy the traitors. I will destroy anybody who tries to attack us, the West. I'm about stability for this massive country. You know, he showed this weakness and that's a real problem. So the fact, even the fact that he went running to the Belarusian president, who he normally treats like a child, like a joke, and he had to ask Kadyrov, this Chechen warlord thug, to try to come help stop Prigozhin. These things are truly embarrassments, and people in Russia understand that. And so it's going to be really hard for him to regain that sense of inevitability that he needs to be there or Russia falls apart. So, John, let's do this. Take me out of the immediate and into the mind of the individual Russian and the Russian people, which, near as I can tell, are, have been convinced for certainly decades, maybe centuries, that the rest of the world is out to get them. When in fact, I think the rest of the world would be fine if Russia just left everybody alone. So what goes on in that mind, in that collective mind about how like, okay, yeah, the Baltic states have joined NATO. Ukraine is definitely pointing west. 
you know, Romania, Poland, they were Warsaw Pact countries. Now they're all NATO countries, but they're not the German army in 1941. They're capitalist for the most part. They're democratic to varying degrees. So give us a sense of this longstanding or maybe existential conviction that the rest of the world is out to get them. Well, if you're a dictator, you have to have an enemy. You have to have somebody to blame. So if your economy is terrible, you have to blame the West. Or if you, you know, things are falling apart and you seem to be doing a poor job, you have to say, well, that's because everybody's after us and I'm protecting you. I'm the protector. That's why what happened this weekend is really important. And he showed weakness here. But to get to the people, sadly, Russia has been poorly led for centuries. And Russians have, you know, are used to propaganda. They're used to a dictatorial system where they are completely cut off from any sort of political action. They're repressed. And so what that creates over time is you've set a system where the people understand that they have no ability to influence their own government. And so they keep quiet. And over time, they become passive and they stay away from politics. And what's interesting about what happened this weekend is if you do that decade after decade, and frankly, century after century, sure, the people will stay away from protesting. They'll stay away from speaking their minds. But when push comes to shove and you want those people to rally to you, if you want them to defend you when there's a, a real threat coming towards Moscow, those people stand on the sidelines. None of them are going to try to protect the Kremlin or protect Putin or, or anything here. So I think this was a real wake-up call to Putin because what happens is this threat is coming you know, up the road of these sort of Russian mercenaries. And he was calling his security services and they weren't picking up the phone. And he was telling his military to come do it. And he, he had to be worried that some of them were actually supportive of Prigozhin. And he wanted the people to sort of come out and rally to the Kremlin and they did no such thing. And so when you beat your people for decade after decade, they're not going to come railing to your side in time of crisis. Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. So I want to bring in Trigby Olson, senior advisor to the Lincoln Project and regular guest here on the podcast. So Trigby, we're talking a little bit about before you joined about Belarus and Lukashenko, who's the longtime dictator of Belarus. We know he lost an election that he refused to step down. There were protests. Now it turns out that he's the arbiter, or at least the deal maker here between Prigozhin and the mercenaries and Putin and the Kremlin. Talk to us a little bit from your experience about how, as John said before you joined, this is a guy, he's sort of used like a rented mule. You know, how does this guy show up back in the middle of everything? I mean, John and I are old enough to remember when Vladimir Putin viewed Alexander Lukashenko as a collective farm boss rube, who he just sort of kicked around whenever he needed to. And it is. I guess, as I was watching events as it relates to Lukashenko, you know, I don't know what game Lukashenko's playing. It is interesting because after Tikhanovskaya likely beat Lukashenko in the election and there were mass protests, and I was doing work with them, as you recall, Reed, before I got out to Park City, it was Putin really who stepped in and saved him. He sent propagandists. He sent, there was an FSB plane. You know, like a 737-sized plane that landed with FSB people. That's how he squashed this. I don't know what game Lukashenko is exactly playing, but I 
do know that if you're Vladimir Putin, it has to be incredibly humiliating that on the world stage, Alexander Lukashenko is getting credit for ending this thing. Yeah. And the deal that it sounds like Lukashenko make is, oh, yeah, I'll take this guy and uh, thousands of his goons onto my territory. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, guys, it's not like they Putin didn't want a second army in his country. I can't imagine Lukashenko did either, except Prigozhin's probably like, well, I can never go to the second floor of a building. I can never drink tea again, right? You guys at Liga Project did a great ad on Donald Trump where you said, Donald, everyone around you is a rat. You just don't, everyone is reporting, <laughs> everyone's going to rat on you. Everybody you talk to, they're, they're going behind your back. This is essentially what life is like in the Kremlin right now. You know, he doesn't know who supports him and who doesn't support him. Prigozhin actually has, you know, he's a horrible, disgusting, murderous thug, not very smart, essentially came up through crime and stuff. But, you know, he's grasped onto a narrative that's made him sort of a populist favorite amongst the nationalist right. So Vladimir Putin now is kind of in a tough position because obviously he's jailed and arrested anybody who's sort of to the left of him who could be in opposition. And then he's losing the war, which makes the people on the right who want, you know, why don't we do more? Why don't we blow up Ukraine? They're not happy with him either. And so Prigozhin is spreading on his social media this very strong narrative that these rich fat cats in the Kremlin with their children running around Europe are sending your kids to be slaughtered in Ukraine for no reason. The generals are just stealing money and all this kind of stuff. Now, that narrative resonates amongst a lot of people and a lot of people inside Vladimir Putin's security services. Well, does that have the added benefit of being true? Yes, it has the added benefit of being true. <laughs> and it scares the hell out of him because, yeah, he'd love to crack down. He'd love to be like Erdogan after the coup in Turkey and crack down and get rid of everybody. But he's got a war going on. And he doesn't know who is with him and who is not with him. He just had this crisis. And when he needed sort of support and help, he didn't really get it. But to go back to your point about Belarus and this deal, first of all, on one hand, we just don't know that much about it. On the second hand, I wouldn't give it too much credence. These people aren't the smartest people in the world. And this is like a potential payback. Putin came to Lukashenko's aid after the failed election. And in this case, you know, perhaps Putin or someone, you know, tried to use Lukashenko to help him out here. But it is certainly humiliating because Lukashenko is treated, again, like, like you mentioned, as sort of a rube, a, a farmer. I can remember he's been in power longer than Vladimir Putin has. And I can remember in the 90s when he was the president of Belarus, there was a sport balloon contest going on in the Baltics. And some sport balloonist by mistake floated over Belarus and he took you know, whatever they are, MiG-25 fighters and shot them down and killed the people, these poor sport balloonists who just happened to be up for a weekend. So th these are not nice people and they're not smart people. And we don't have great insight into what's making them go, but think mob boss more than head of country. So Trigvi, tell us a little bit about, in your mind, what you called the Game of Thrones sort of situation we have going on here. Here's the thing. Like I'm back home in Wisconsin, grew up here. Most of the people, my my drinking buddies, I'll end up going out for beers with my buddies and they're going to all want to know what I think about Russia and try and understand it. It's really hard to understand people that are that Neanderthal and that zero sum because most Americans never, ever in their lifetime encounter people like what you're going to see short of watching Game of Thrones. I mean, and that is what it's going to be like. It It will be bloody and it will be ugly and it you know they're jockeying for position here's the thing at the end of the day you know i I've, I've said this before i think and it's true with trump too autocratic actors and putin certainly is that 
they maintain power by by showing they're inevitable and invincible through fear. <laughs> and Progozin completely stripped that. And when people were asking, well, is this real or is this Kabuki? The reality is there's no way that Putin was going to let somebody strip that inevitability and invincibility. Just not. So, guys, let's head south, back down the highway from Rostov-on-Don, back into eastern Ukraine, where the bulk of the, the fighting is going on in the war between Russia and Ukraine. Obviously, it has been devastating for Ukraine, but they have fought as well and better than I think any of us could have imagined more than almost a year and a half in. The best fighters that I guess the Russians had are, you know, in a base somewhere or in Belarus. You know, they, they said oh, Russia's not the best, the second best army in Europe or in the world. They're not even the second best army in Ukraine at this point. They're the third best army behind a bunch of mercenaries. So tell us how this, John, in your mind, affects the war, because the Russians not good at fighting. Obviously, the Russian military has, especially with conscripts, has been a place of, of incredible brutality and low morale. They've emptied prisons to just throw guys into battle as cannon fodder. So now talk to us a little bit about how the weakness of Putin and the unrest amongst his inner circles, specifically amongst the military leadership, how does that translate to the battlefield? On the bigger sense, I think it translates quite well and, and quite dangerously for the, for the Kremlin. So People have gotten used to, and even the Russian citizenships are, are starting to get a sense of the fact that there's incredible incompetence and dysfunction in Ukraine, in the military, in the fighting, and in the war. But what this last weekend showed is there's also incredible dysfunction and incompetence domestically and at home, and it's not clear who's in charge. And someone who one day Putin called a traitor and a thug, the next day is, is let out scot-free, even though he shot down Russian airplanes and Russian boys are dead by Russian hands. So if you're one of these Russian boys that's in a trench in Ukraine and you've been fighting, you've been seeing your colleagues being killed, if you're looking back home and you're seeing that, hey, at least I thought I was fighting for my country, at least I thought I better keep fighting because the Kremlin's incredibly powerful and Putin knows exactly what he's doing. And, and this is all, you know, I'm, I'm a Russian for the Russian narod and Russian people I'm going to fight. Now you see your home front people fighting each other. And it's not even clear who's going to come out on top here. And all of a sudden, this strong leader is actually a weak leader. What am I doing? Echoes of 1917 on the Eastern Front. Exactly. Getting out of World War I. So the biggest threat I see to Putin is now that he's shown weakness at home as well as weakness abroad, if the Russian soldiers start putting down their weapons or, or walking away or fleeing, that changes things for Putin. And that changes all of those people he that are maybe sitting on the sideline inside the Russian military hierarchy or inside the Russian security services, if they see that, that is likely the kind of thing that could really impact things in the Kremlin. And so, Trigby, you know, you think about this from an American perspective, right? We lost 58,000 men, Marines, Air Force personnel in Vietnam. You know, I think we're still in some ways feeling the effects of that. You know, we lost thousands of young men and women in Iraq and Afghanistan. And every one of those killed or lost, right, was a significant blow, not only to their family, obviously, but to the country, but also it was a political blow. Now, the Russians have lost more than they even lost in, what, eight or nine years in Afghanistan, maybe 2x that. And so to John's point, you're sitting there, right, you're 19 years old, you got an AK-47, maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. You got an NCO who's drunk all the time and an officer you haven't seen in two weeks. Like, put us in that guy's combat boots. Well, one of the things 
that with the Russians, when they're getting conscripts, <laughs> they're not coming from elite sections of Moscow. They're coming from a lot of places around the country. So there's a little bit of a self-selecting in who gets to serve, and it isn't necessarily children of people with power, right? Like Dmitry Poskov's daughter isn't on the front lines. She was yucking it up in her $5 million place in Kensington, in London. So like they're kind of people without voices. And then they have the people that they've paid. But it seems like Kadyrov and those people that they've paid, they really don't want a piece of this either. I think it just gets back to all the vulnerabilities that exist. And I mean, the one thing that I found when I was involved in colored revolutions and peaceful, nonviolent transition, you never knew how weak the autocrat was basically until they were having to leave the building. It's really hard to understand the nuances and the minutia that's going on inside. And as much time as people like John and I have spent trying to understand it, there's just so many pieces. But here's the good news is that, you know, I talked to a, somebody that I worked with who's a Ukrainian guy who's been out on the front lines doing amazing things. And um, he's elated. I mean, this has been the best thing for Ukrainian morale that's happened since, quite frankly, I think, since they held Kiev. And you can see that the Russians know that, which is why they bombed a restaurant, as we're recording this yesterday. A place they knew was popular, a place they knew would be crowded. Right. I mean, that's what makes it so dangerous, right? Is like, on the other hand, I think the whole cornered Putin's a dangerous Putin. Yeah. But Putin's dangerous pretty much all the time anyway. Right, right. Like this is this is not a guy you're you're not inviting this guy over for tea and cookies, especially not the tea. Um, John, let me ask you this. The Ukrainian security services seem to be excellent at what they do. They were able to pinpoint a number of Russian leaders, right, because these guys were using their cell phones. Right. And maybe that's just baseline like competence. But it seems like the Ukrainian intelligence services really have a pretty good understanding of what's going on, not only in their own country, obviously, but what's going on across the border. Well, we probably should have listened to them for even longer than we did and, and listened to other countries that lived around Russia because they understand Russia. They lived under the yoke. Their parents and grandparents were taken away to camps. Ukrainians, they speak Russian. They understand, they understand the mentality. Since at least 2014, there's been constant cyber attacks, constant disinformation, constant efforts to try to cause problems and attack and kill people and this type of stuff. So the Ukrainians, they know exactly what the Russians are. They know not to trust. Them. Like you, you still see here in the United States, is you know, we even saw the White House this weekend. Well, let's, you know, it's very important that we make clear to Moscow that we're not involved and this is an internal event, you know, and and stability is very important. And, and you know, if Putin falls, this could, for Christ's sake, like the, the, this is a we have such a misunderstanding of Russia. Putin is a bully. That's essentially what it is. And he's got away with it because we keep giving in to the bully. And what has happened this weekend is the bully showed weakness. And so the people who understand that mentality know now is the time that you need to push back against the bully and you need to sort of change the equation. And just like Trigby said, dictators, you know, it's like smashing a big giant rock with a hammer. Nothing happens for time after time after time until all of a sudden it cracks and breaks. We saw it in East Germany, for example, the most oppressive, perhaps, security service in the history of the world. Their people did nothing. They, everybody was spied upon. And it, it looked like it would never change until there starts to be a crack in the armor. And all of a sudden, people see that there's a chance for change. And then there's a flood. 
And one guy puts out an, a badly worded press release, and the next thing you know, the wall falls. <laughs> no, exactly. He didn't even realize that he had opened the wall. That's correct. And so, yeah, you know, this is a time, and the Ukrainians understand now is the time to push. Now is the time to try to use some of that, not disinformation, but the beauty here is you can use true information. You saw today in the press that it looks like General Surovikin, who was in charge of all of Russian troops in Ukraine, may have been working with Prigozhin and may have been aware that Prigozhin was going to take troops and go towards Moscow. Wow. If you're Putin in the Kremlin, you realize, oh my God, my one of my most senior generals may have been working to actually send troops and attack me. Who else is working you know, against me? What's going on? It's Again, it's your rat commercial. So Trigby, let's talk about this. So John and I were talking a little bit before you joined that Putin used a guy like Prigozhin in 2016 to attack the American electoral system. I'm just going to call it that. We know that they did it again in 2020. Do you believe that they are able to carry out that same sort of misinformation, disinformation effort in the context of the next 18 months, given that Putin is like they're on their heels on the battlefield? Putin's God knows where. There's a lot of upheaval at the top. Are they able to walk and chew gum and try and disrupt our elections at the same time? That's a really good question. They're going to try because the stakes for them between Joe Biden and Donald Trump or even Ron DeSantis are existential. Yeah, are existential. So I think that's key. I think John just made a fascinating point about, you know, the White House. Oh, we didn't have anything to do with it. Quite honestly, if there ever were a time to create some strategic ambiguity, about whether you were in the middle of it or not, it might have been a good time to just not say anything. You know, here's the thing. The neighbors talking to a bunch of people from the Baltic states trying to figure this out. You know, the Baltic states, they understand the Russians better than anyone. And they're sort of like, okay, it's too bad that it wasn't more actively engaged by NATO because that Putin would understand. But, you know, in terms of the U.S., politics, yeah, it's an existential threat to them, I think. I mean, they kind of pushed all their chips in. I was just going to add in terms of can the Russians continue to interfere here in the United States? Sadly, I think the answer to that is yes, because it's so easy. You know, we look back in history and when we looked at what happened in 2016, me and a lot of people try to explain how during the Soviet days, this is the kind of what they call active measures, disinformation, covert action that they would do constantly, subversion. And they used to do it, and they would create false stories and try to pump them into our, our system. 2016, obviously, what they would do is either create false stories or see fake stories and just pump them via weaponized social media. But nowadays, all you got to do is find bad actors in the United States, malign actors. And many of them are politicians. Robert Kennedy, a lot of the Republican Congress people and people running for president and Donald Trump, all you need to do is take what they're doing and amplify it and exploit it and push it. You don't need to do a lot of big thinking here. All you got to do is be a, a speaker for people who are already hurting American politics. Well, look, and I mean, so you've got Trump, right? And we talked about this. And let's expand this foreign actor discussion outside of Russia a little bit, guys. So we've got Russia. We know what they're going to do. We've got the Saudis who've put billions of dollars into Jared Kushner and live golf and God knows what else. You've got the Iranians, you've got the North Koreans, you've got the Emiratis. And so to your point, John, now we have these bad actors inside the United States, many of them hyper wealthy, you know, Elon Musk with Twitter, who 
you know, I was on the phone with a buddy of mine the other day who works in a field that has nothing to do with politics. And they have a Twitter feed specific to this very niche industry, again, that has nothing to do with politics. And even he was complaining about how much right wing crap his feed feeds him when he's never gone to anything political. It's like skiing, sports and this business he's in. There's the only three things he's ever looked at. And he's just inundated by this stuff now. So I guess my question is, John, in your experience, you know, we're eight years into what Jeff Charlotte calls the Trumpocene era, and we still haven't seemed to have figured out how to combat this stuff internally. No, and that's the problem is we're our own worst enemies. And it goes back to your original question that we started with in terms of, you know, this whole narrative of the deep state and attacking the CIA and attacking the FBI and attacking the Justice Department, and all this type of thing, taking people who are public servants trying to do a professional job and turn them into partisan actors for your own purposes is you know the, the fact that that may benefit you on some sort of talking point on Fox News or one of these other channels, you're digging at and slowly damaging the kind of thing that actually does protect us and, and it does hold us free and democratic. And so you know this is the kind of thing that we're hurting ourselves and then we're putting foreign actors in a position to do damage to us. It's really, really tough for us because at the end of the day, as much as we're doing to support Ukraine and all these other kind of things, we have to get our own act in order because you know, if Donald Trump wins, all of this changes in Ukraine and, and, and for Russia and the rest of the world. I mean, the incompetence and the malign activity and the buffoonishness. I mean, John, at it, 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 your former home, right, in the aftermath of the 2020 election, which Donald Trump lost fairly and freely, they wanted to send that goon Cash Patel over to Langley, <laughs> right? And it was only, um, I can't remember the director's name at this point, but she was like, send this guy to my building and I'm out. So this is what I always say is all of the things that we're seeing at home, right? January 6th, like if they were willing to do that, I don't give them any credit for not being willing to try something worse here at home. Gosh, Patel yesterday was spotting off pro-Russian, like specifically pro-Russian stuff, like not even like this carefully worded thing. Right. And I think also it's not a perfect reflection but just like Putin, you know, Putin's chef or this guy was a criminal, right? Had Russia been a normal country, normal, right? That person never gets within a country mile of any sort of real authority, power, money, whatever the case might be. Same in the United States. But for the incompetence and the amorality of someone like a Donald Trump and those closest to him, the Cash Patels of the world, the Rick Grinnells of the world, all of these people, they're never within, you know, they're not allowed inside the Beltway as far as these jobs are concerned. Well, I mean, when Grinnell was ambassador to Germany, so as you know, Reed, I did some work for Merkel and had really good relationships with her team. I mean, he was treating Merkel, he was busy screwing around with the far right there. He was treating Merkel like she was, I don't know, Vladimir Putin and he was ambassador in Moscow. I mean, it was just crazy. They legitimize people that have no business being legitimized. They give them a platform. Fox News does this. Quite frankly, I mean, Elon Musk, speaking of Elon Musk, John and I, you know, both saw this. You know, Elon Musk takes a shot at Tom Nichols without actually linking to his tweet and then is retweeting David Sachs. It's like, what the hell? I mean, talk about being all screwed up. Look, if they'd like to go back to South Africa, I would love it. 
I'd buy them plane tickets back to, back to South Africa, every last one of them, if they wanted to go back. And I think that's the other part, too, is and I said this on a thing we were doing last night is so many of these people, they want all this power, whether real or perceived. But in so many cases, they did very little to earn. And I think back about that scene in Jurassic Park where Jeff Goldblum plays the like crazy scientist. He's like, you stood on the work of others and you made it your own, but you didn't understand what you were doing in the first place. And now it got out of control. Right. And that I think is, again, maybe it's too pedestrian, but it, it feels a little bit like that, which is these people all fell into something none of them could have ever expected. Now they all believe they're experts at it and they're going to get us in a lot of trouble if they return. It is sort of the Russification of American politics. A dictator like Putin doesn't want the best and brightest around him because they're a potential threat. They could actually be seen to be better than him and, and be a threat to him. So he wants sort of losers around him that he can control and keep them strong or keep them down. And essentially, that's what's happened to our country, maybe not for the same cynical reason, because Donald Trump was just such a fool that no sensible person wanted to work for him because he was completely unfit for power. So he could only get sort of the worst of the worst. And it's going to be obviously worse if he wins again next time. And so we're sort of, we're making ourselves into this kind of criminalized dictatorship. It's terrible for the American people. All right, guys, we're going to leave it there today. But before we go, John, where can our listeners find you online and where can they find your work? I am on Twitter at John underscore Cypher, S-I-P-H-E-R. And I, you know, I occasionally when something comes to my head, I'll write for the Washington Post or Time or, or New York Times or something like that. And I'm, I have a Hollywood production company. We're trying to make espionage movies and shows. And it's a slow process. And there's a strike going on right now. So it's a little bit slower than usual. But at some point, we'll have some stuff that I can push forward. Well, I can't wait because I know this sounds goofy, but spy novels are my favorite. I once got five John Le Carre novels at a yard sale for $3 and I thought I'd won the lottery. So just to give you a sense of what a nerd I am. All right, Trigvi, where can we find you online? Find me at Trigvi, T-R-Y-G-V-E Olson on Twitter. And you can find me every Wednesday on the civicmedia.us network online or on radio all across the great state of Wisconsin on the Todd Albaugh Show at 1.30. You'll get some Green Bay Packers and you'll get some political advice too. Awesome. And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter and TikTok at Reed Galen on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. John Cypher, Trig Olson. Thanks for joining me. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln, and for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode.